Hey podcast listeners, I'm Amanda and today I'm taking you to the northwest border of New York to talk about some dark history around one of the natural wonders of New York. We'll be covering some ancient folklore, a little bit of dark history, and some amazing feats surrounding one of the top honeymoon destinations of the world. I can't wait to plunge into this with you. Strap in and welcome to New York's Dark Side. One of the most popular tourist attractions in New York State also has a lot of history, and today we're talking about the history of Niagara Falls. And if you're thinking, how does this fit into the theme of the show? I hear you. Just trust me on this one. Of course, being me, I'm going to start you out with some history around the falls themselves. They're estimated to be about 12,000 years young. There are three falls between New York and Ontario, Canada. The American Falls on New York's side, the Bridal Veil Falls in the middle, which used to be part of the American Falls, but has been separated by just natural forces, and then the Canadian Falls, or as they are also known, Horseshoe Falls. The Horseshoe Falls are 170 feet high, The brink of the falls is approximately 2,500 feet from one side to the other. The American Falls are 180 feet high and 1,100 feet long. The river below Niagara Falls averages 170 feet deep, and it's estimated that the location of the falls has actually moved 7 miles from where they were 12,000 years ago just due to natural erosion which prior to when the United States and Canadian governments started taking measures to reduce the erosion and the brink of the falls in the 1950s, the falls were actually moving back an estimated of three feet every year due to the approximately 5.5 billion gallons of water plunging over the falls. Now the erosion rate is just shy of about one foot per year. So it's still moving, you know. In a couple thousand years when we maybe are no longer here, who knows where they're going to be. There's a ton of history in this area, and we're only going to talk about some of it because it's all I can probably cram into one episode. And man, if I made one episode about everything, I'd run out of episodes probably. And that's not cool. I want to keep the show going as long as possible. The first people believed to settle in this area came in at about... 1400 AD from Ontario. The Anguras, one of the earliest Native American tribes to settle in the area, gave the Niagara River its name. There is a Native American myth regarding the falls about the Maid of the Mist, which the ferry tour that brings you through the rapids into the mist of the falls is named for. The myth is about a a Native American maiden The maiden lost her husband and she became a young widow. And because of that, she lost all hope. She was completely lost in her grief. And one day she entered her canoe and she 
paddled into the currents and she was just above the falls. The rapids caught her canoe and pulled it swiftly towards the falls and as it pitched the canoe over and she began to fall, the god of thunder, Heno, who lived within the falls, swooped out and caught her. And he brought her into his home beneath the falls, and he, along with his sons, tended to her, bringing her solace in her grief. Heno's youngest son, I did not get his name, um... I didn't even see it. I actually looked it up and I, I couldn't find it. So if you know what it is, let me know because I want to know. Anyway, Heno's youngest son fell in love with the maiden and he spoke words of love to her and won over her heart. And they married and they had a son who began to follow in his grandfather's footsteps, learning the ways of the God of Thunder. One day, a great snake traveled down the river and began to poison the waters of the maiden's tribe. And the people of the tribe, they began to sicken, they began to die. And Hanno saw what was going on and he told the maiden what was happening. And she asked to be able to return to the tribe for a time to warn them of the dangers of what was going on. So he agreed and she swiftly returned to the tribe and she urged them to move to higher ground safety. The tribe, respecting her, packed up and they fled for the hills and her mission was complete. So Heno came and he returned her to her home and her family beneath the falls. When the snake returned to the village and found it empty, he became enraged and he started to seek them out. Heno heard the rage of the snake and came out through the falls. He smited the great serpent, with a huge thunderbolt and the serpent's body floated down the river and became trapped in the cataract, which then created a semicircle that deflected the water of the falls into a horseshoe shape that poured massive amounts of water into the home of Heno. Heno, he was, despite all of his powers, unable to stop this and he moved his family into the sky and they now watch over the people from the sky and Heno's voice can still be heard through the thunder of the mighty waterfalls. And I freaking love folklore like that. It's one of my favorite classes I ever took when I was a senior in high school was Greek mythology. And it was amazing. And I actually got to write my own myth. I still have it. And it was so much fun. Hmm. Maybe I will read my myth to you as a bonus episode someday. If you want to hear it, let me know. Reach out to me on social media. It might be good. It might be bad. I can't remember. I remember what it was about, but I can't remember how great it was or how bad it was. It was amazing. There's another version of this particular legend about the maiden, and that was that the maiden was actually sacrificed by the tribe to the thunder god to cure the poison in the water that was killing off the Native Americans. And this version of the story is believed actually to have been started by, oh, I'm going to try not to butcher his name, Rene Robert Cavalier de La Salle. He's a whole character that we're not going to get into into this episode. But anyway, I don't like that version. And I think he started it just because he was not a very good guy. From what I can tell, it caused a whole lot of drama. It painted a very unfair light 
of the Native American tribes, causing people to believe that they were participating in human sacrifice, and that's not actually correct. So we're going to stick with the, the much nicer version that I like. But I just wanted to point that out, that you may have heard it in a different light, and that's not cool. The town of Niagara Falls was started by the family of Augustus Porter. Many believe that the family kept the land surrounding the falls in its natural state until New York State bought it from them in 1885, but that's also not the case. In letters between Augustus and his brother Peter, who founded a town upstream called Black Rock, the porters were actually developing the land to the best of their ability. They had built snack stands and viewing platforms, mills, tanneries, all along the area in the 1820s and the 1830s and had plans to build a large hotel for wealthy people on Goat Island. Goat Island separates the Horseshoe Falls from the American Falls. The brothers had tried to sell their land to make bank and they were running advertisement campaigns highlighting the power of the falls. When the Civil War came and then went, the Free Niagara movement settled in and was spearheaded by someone we actually met in our Central Park episodes, our friend Frederick Law Olmsted. He and several of his wealthy friends, J.P. Morgan, Oliver Wendell Holmes, John Jay, Thomas Carlyle, and John Ruskin, signed a petition urging for the creation of a state park at Niagara Falls. It was a successful campaign, and this became the first state park opened in the United States. I didn't know that until I started this episode. Some of those men actually had ulterior motives and ended up on the board of Niagara Falls Power Company. This would, in 1895, end up harnessing the power of Niagara Falls. Thomas Evershed, he was a man responsible for surveying the lands around the falls and drawing up the map for the state park, was actually also an engineer for the power company. I wonder if he left that out of his resume. And he was very careful to draw up the boundaries of the park so that the power of the falls could still be harnessed and ensured that the park would not interfere with the canals that were needed to do so. Isn't that some shit? According to one source, the water power from Niagara Falls is the largest source of electric power in the world. The water running over the falls comes from the Great Lakes, and both the American and Canadian government have the capability of controlling the amount of water going over the falls to slow erosion, which we already talked about a little bit earlier. Niagara Falls has been one of the most popular destinations for honeymooners in the world since promoters in the area helped institute honeymooning as a tradition in the mid-19th century. The 1953 film Niagara starred Marilyn Monroe as a honeymooner with a wandering eye. The film marked Monroe's explosion as a film phenom, perhaps because the film features a full two minutes of Monroe's soon-to-be-famous backside as she walks towards the falls for a better view. Twelve million tourists from all over the world visit Niagara Falls every summer. I went this summer! It was fun! Let's talk about some of the attractions of the falls. In 1827, as a publicity stunt, a group of hotel owners decided that the best way to gain tourists to their establishments was to send a bunch of animals over the falls. William Forsyth, the owner of the Pavilion Hotel, obtained a lake schooner 
named the Michigan that was condemned. And he worked alongside General Parkhurst Whitney, owner of the Eagle Hotel, and John Brown, owner of the Ontario Hotel, to advertise the event, which was set to take place on September 8, 1827 at 6 p.m. They decked out the ship to look like a pirate ship, even tying human dummies around to help complete the look. They advertised young, strong, ferocious animals that were of superior musculature to help ensure that they survived the trip. They had on the boat a buffalo, two small bears, two raccoons, a dog, a poor dog, come on, a poor dog, and a goose. A goose. The animals were in cages so they couldn't escape, right? This this sounds like it's going to be fine. I don't know why it wouldn't be fine, right? The event attracted a crowd of about 10,000 spectators. I mean, it's 1820s. There's not a lot of entertainment around. So, I, man, I, I struggle with this one. The people were allowed to go onto the ship to view the animals before they were sent over the falls. The ship would end up being towed to Navy Island, where it was pointed towards the falls and released. Bye-bye. And the rapids were so intense that the hull broke open, which allowed the bears to escape, and they swam to Go Island. The bears made it. The rest of the animals went over the falls, and the only surviving animal that made it over the falls was the goose. Everybody else drowned. That was sad. On the Canadian side of the falls, this is like completely different topic now, so we're going to move on. On the Canadian side of the falls, there was the Niagara Falls Museum, which was also a huge attraction back in the day. The museum was operated by Thomas Barnett and his family, who were completely dedicated to the study of natural history and obtaining exotic specimens. <laughs> that was my dog. <laughs> okay. They had an extensive collection of minerals and plants and mounted animals. They also had a collection of quote-unquote freaks, like many other museums of the time. And this collection included a two-headed calf, among other things. And in the 1850s, the museum acquired some Egyptian mummies, which they prominently made into a featured exhibit. The family, however, would fall on hard times and ended up losing their collection. In 1999, the collection of mummies would be sold by a shrunken head collector named Billy Jameson to an American museum for a large amount of money. And Jameson had speculated that one of the mummies might have been an Egyptian pharaoh based on a diary entry that had recorded its purchase. The diary entries spoke about how Sidney Barnett, the son of Thomas Barnett, had traveled to Egypt and they had bought a mummy from an Egyptian antiquities dealer who was a well-known fence for a group of tomb robbers who had discovered a cache of royal artifacts. After the robbers were caught, the Egyptian authorities had discovered that the coffin of Ramses I was empty. Ramses I was one of the mummies that had been on display at the Niagara History Museum. And after this was confirmed through analysis of CT scans and computer imaging, Ramses I was returned to Egypt. Isn't that wild? 
the freaking pharaoh was at Niagara Falls. The Niagara Falls region was also instrumental in its role in the Underground Railroad, which I didn't know, but it also makes a lot of sense. Slave catchers had been ramping up in the northern states in the years leading up to the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Slavery was illegal in Canada, thank goodness, and one of the key places to cross into Canada was in the Niagara region. And escaped slaves would use many methods to try to get across. In Black Rock, the river narrowed enough where fugitive slaves would attempt to swim across, but Boats could also be hired to cross the river into Ontario. And in 1848, the first bridge across the river was completed. Fugitives by the hundreds would cross at Niagara to Canada, often helped by African-Americans who worked in the restaurants and hotels of Niagara. Harriet Tubman lived nearby and personally led many of them to freedom, which I 100% want to look more into. I feel a little bit ignorant that I didn't realize this and maybe I had heard about it but it's like anyway now there was someone tied to this area's history that was not cool with any of this and that was the town of Black Rock's founder Peter Porter that jerk Peter Porter had been a hero in the war of 1812 another item on my list of things that I want to research he was serving as a militia general and had married into a prominent family from Kentucky that were slave owners and had inherited 25 slaves of his own. Porter set about aiding and abetting slave catchers who came to Niagara, and he would end up sparking Canada's first race riot when he assisted a slave catcher named David Castleman attempt to extradite a slave named Samuel Mosby from Canada in 1837. Castleman was staying with Porter while petitioning to Ontario's governor for the extradition, which Canada did agree to it. Samuel Mosby ended up being arrested at Niagara-on-the-Lake. But the people of Canada are awesome and were not fucking having it at all. So they began to gather outside the jail to protest. But... As the deputy sheriff tried to bring Mosby to the ferry to be brought to the United States, the protesters intervened and were able to successfully free him. Fuck yeah. This, unfortunately, did lead to the death of two of the protesters. Peter Porter, upset about the the turn of events, he ended up writing an angry letter to the governor to complain, but the whole thing ended up fueling Canada's strong abolitionist stance And the British ended up upholding their decision to not extradite fugitive slaves to the United States. So thank you, Canada. Thank you, Britain. Fuck you, Peter Porter. There have been a ton of daredevils who have dared to brave the falls in a variety of ways. They've used unconventional means to travel over the falls. Many times this led to their deaths since they usually hit the bottom of the river when they go over before coming back up to the surface and there have also been tightrope walkers so we're going to talk about them so the first person to go over the falls in a barrel was annie edson taylor in 1901 and i feel like you don't really hear much about her like i i had no idea that the first person to go over the falls was a fucking woman amazing 
She said to everyone, hold my beer, I've got this, after hearing about some of the methods people were trying to make a buck at the Pan American Exposition. Annie was a widow. She was working as a teacher who was struggling to make ends meet. She was 63 at the time of this stunt, and she went over the falls on her 63rd birthday. Side note, what a fucking way to spend your birthday. She would end up telling everyone that she was actually 42, but she was she was 63. She hired a manager. She actually designed the fucking barrel by herself, and she built a prototype and everything. Like, hello? Let's just marvel at this for a moment. This woman, while she openly admitted to everyone that she was doing this for money for herself and a couple of her friends that were also facing hard times, designed a fucking barrel and sent herself over the falls alone, becoming not only the first person, but the first and only solo woman to go over the falls. And she fucking survived. Fucking Annie Edson Taylor. That's amazing. So Annie had sketched out the design for the barrel, and then she designed a prototype out of cardboard. A local company that built beer kegs would construct the final product for her, but she personally hand-selected every piece of wood that was used. It was oblong, and it was three feet wide at its widest point. There were 10 metal hoops that held it together, and there was an anvil in the bottom to help keep it upright. And a week before Annie took the plunge herself, she actually tested the barrel with her cat, sending her cat over the falls. Her cat survived, everybody. So don't worry, this was not a repeat of the hotel stunt. I'm like not a fan that she sent her cat over there, but her cat survived. There are pictures of her actually posing with her cat and the barrel. Oh, what, what is her cat's name? I can't remember. On the afternoon of October 24th, Annie got into her barrel she was surrounded by pillows, and then it was sealed. It was towed out to the Canadian side of the river towards Horseshoe Falls because the water is deeper on that side. And they just let her go and said, bye, Annie. And she made her way to the edge. She would later say that she would feel like she was being suffocated, though they had pumped a bunch of fresh air in it, enough for about an hour for her into the barrel before sealing her in. She maintained her bravery. She would later say that it really went as she predicted it to, that there was a brief pause at the top before she plummeted over the edge. And Annie would describe the feeling of the barrel hitting the surface and then sinking below it. She hit the rocks before coming back to the surface, and she waited adrift for a short time until the boatmen at the bottom of the falls came to retrieve her. And they were shocked, actually, that she lived. They shouted, about her successful trip via a megaphone to the crowds of spectators, and the maid of the mist blew its fucking horn for her in triumph. Her plans actually for a financial windfall from the stunt failed. She did achieve celebrity status for a very short time. She was nicknamed the goddess of water, and she had poems written about her in her honor. Unfortunately, she was taken advantage of by managers that she had hired to help her because they're fucking men, and they were probably just like, yo, I want this windfall. And she didn't get any of the money. They even had the audacity to fucking steal her barrel. She would end up dying penniless. And she worked as a street vendor selling copies of her memoir titled Over the Falls for 10 cents a copy in Niagara Falls for 20 years after her debut until her death. And the first man 
to, to actually take on the challenge of going over the falls wouldn't happen until July 11th, 1920, when Charles Stevens would attempt the plunge in a 600-pound oak barrel. Unfortunately, the force of the water would rip open the barrel, and Stephen lost his life. The only part of him that they found was his right arm. On July 9th, 1960, a seven-year-old boy named Roger Woodward was swept over the falls after a boating accident. He and his sister Deanne and an uncle were in a boat on the river when they encountered motor trouble. The boat hit a shoal and then capsized and sent them all overboard. Deanne was barely rescued by two men, a mere 20 feet from the falls. However, Roger ended up being swept over Horseshoe Falls, and he survived. He was the only person known to go over the falls without any sort of protection and survive. Thankfully, the people on the Maid of the Mist saw his orange life jacket, and they were able to pull him aboard. He only had minor injuries, some bruising and scrapes. He did have a concussion which put him into the hospital for three days after. But he survived, and he came back 30 years later to talk about it with his family. There's another really cool guy that we're going to have to back up and talk about. This was a French acrobat named Jean-Francois Gravelet. I really hope I said that right. Jean-Francois Gravelet better known as Monsieur Charles Blondin, came to Niagara Falls in 1858 with the hopes of being the first person to actually cross Niagara Falls. It was wintertime and due to the weather, you know, all the snow and ice and crazy winds. If you don't know that area, like it gets crazy amounts of snow. Last year didn't, I want to say they got like I think it was earlier this year. I, they all run together. I think they got like four and a half feet of snow. I think they had to cancel a, one of the Buffalo Bills football games. Correct me if I'm wrong, people. I don't know. I'm just talking. He had to wait until the weather improved. He was a tightrope walker. He had actually started training when he was five and was known as Little Wonder. And he was a really renowned acrobat. And he always worked without a net, choosing to believe that if he used a net, it would only ensure that he was going to fail. In the summer of 1859, actually June 30th, 1859, he made his first attempt at crossing the falls via a tightrope. He used a 1,300-foot rope that was two inches in diameter and made of hemp to cross the falls about 160 feet above them. His first crossing, he started on the American side, and he was dressed in pink tights that were bedecked in spangles. And the article I read on this said that the lowering sun made him appear as if he was clothed in light. Which, isn't that pretty? Isn't that amazing? He had on a pair of soft sole leather shoes and had a 26 foot long pole made of ash to help balance him. A man watching the spectacle would say of Blondin that as he walked slowly and gracefully across the rope that quote his gait was very like the walk of some barnyard cock end quote. (laughs) I just thought that was funny and then I thought about my one rooster um 
think they've heard them crow this episode, which is amazing because they were going off right before I hit record and I was worried, but I don't know. He's got a gimpy limp. Oh, Hennessy. His name's Hennessy. Anyway, he didn't come here to hear about my roosters. The children clung to their mommy's skirts. Women hid behind parasols that still peeked out behind them at the man. Several onlookers fainted. And about a third of the way across, Blondin sat his ass down on the cable and called for the maid of the mist. The fairy anchored below him and Blondin sent down a line and he pulled up a bottle of wine. He took a drink and then he got back up and started back across the line towards Canada. There was a band on the other side. It began to play Home Sweet Home and he finished the crossing at a fucking run. He ran across the rope. That's two inches, two inches wide. He took a break. 20 minutes later, he began his trip across, back across the rope to America, this time with a daguerreotype camera strapped to his back. And this is a big-ass camera. Like, it's not like the iPhones that we have that I'm, I'm actually recording the video for this on my iPhone, but this was a big-ass camera. And he set it up on the rope about... 200 feet in and took a picture of the crowd watching him from the American side. Then he strapped it back to his back and headed back to the American side. And he tells everybody when he gets back over there to come back on July 4th because he's going to do it all again. On July 4th, he crossed without his balancing pole and halfway across, he laid the fuck down on the cable flipped over and finished it off walking backwards, only stopping at one point to take a drink out of his flask. When he made the return trip from Canada to America, this time he wore a large sack over his body so he couldn't see and did the whole trip blinded. Uh, okay. But he doesn't stop there. On July 15th, this time, the president of the fucking United States came, Millard Fillmore, to watch, and Blondin walked the whole trip to Canada backwards and then returned pushing a wheelbarrow. On another day, he did somersaults and backflips the entire trip across, sometimes just stopping to fuck with people by dangling from one hand from the cable. Like, I can't. Yet another time, he strapped his manager, Harry Colcord, to his back and brought him across the poor guy. Like, I would be freaking the fuck out. Like, no thank you. No thank you. There were times he crossed at night with only the light of locomotive headlights attached to each side of the cable to light the way. One time he crossed carrying a table and a chair, and he stopped in the middle to try to sit down and prop his legs up on the table, but the chair fell. And he almost fell, but he managed to catch himself and continue on. Another time, he sat out there and ate cake and drank champagne in the middle of the cable. One of his most famous trips across, he actually carried a stove and utensils, started up the damn stove with fire, and cooked a fucking omelet in the middle of the cable, and then lowered it down to the passengers on the Maid of the Mist below so they could eat it. Like, really? He even crossed the rope in shackles at some point. The fantastic crossings of Blondin might seem kind of random, but when you consider the times, they likely weren't. A lot of his crossings reference the Underground Railroad, 
the hard duties that the slaves took on and their risk of being caught, shackled, and dragged back to America. So fucking Charles Blondin for the win. That's amazing. He highlighted some of the struggles that were going on. The actual bridge used by the Underground Railroad was not far from where Blondin did his own crossings, which is kind of cool. And with that, that concludes my episode. I didn't write an outro this time. Huh. I'm just going to have to fake it till I make it. Okay. There is so much history up in northwestern New York that I haven't even touched on. I can make a couple other episodes on it and I intend to. But because I went to Niagara Falls this summer with my brother... I wanted to kind of focus on Niagara Falls and then I started looking into some of the the fun antic things that were up there and it kind of tied into more dark history than I was intending when I started looking into this, which I thought was pretty cool and that's what I really like about doing this podcast. We're going to end the episode kind of on this note. I will be circling back at this point. I want to keep the conversation going, so please Make sure you are following the show if you haven't already on your podcast platform of choice. You can also follow us on any of our social medias. We are on Facebook at the New York's Dark Side podcast page. We are on X and Instagram at NYDarkSidePod. I have my email that you can send me an email to, NYDarkSidePodcast at gmail.com. All my sources are on the website as well as in the show notes www.nydarksidepodcast.com. I am so excited to keep this going. I love you guys. We've had a lot of fun so far. I love the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you stay curious.